Right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 97 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitchell, and I am in, Tor- in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Aaron Bay in Whitby, Ontario. Hello there. And we have Jaime Lopez over there in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. Right. So, what's going on? What's shaking? What's happening? We should do some FU, I think. All right. Um, why don't I start with uh, my specific FU, and then we'll go to general FU. Sure. FU. <laughs> Last week on the show, and in previous weeks, we've been speculating on the the new changes being made to uh, subscriptions in iOS. Mm-hmm. And uh, last week, uh, when we were recording, I hadn't listened, or rather watched, the subscription change session from WWDC. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark had. Uh, and I was wondering if, uh, primarily, are the subscription changes, that is, the... Um, the uh, being applicable to all application types and everything I had heard suggested that it was just a capability that developers would now have. And in my head, I was hoping very deeply that it would be something like how you set the price on any other type of pricing model. So you can just put the price in the little text field in iTunes connect. And that is it. I mean, it's not like that, but you know, close enough. Um, Mark thought maybe it was because when he watched the session, as I watched it later, uh, they spent all their time in iTunes Connect and um, pretty much showed how you can now configure your subscriptions uh, with different price tiers and different prices per tier. Um, And it was all very complex. Uh, But at the very core of it, one truth became very clear to me. And it's unfortunate, but that truth is this is just an extension of the existing subscription, um, the recurring subscription, automatic renewing subscriptions uh, that are part of the in-app purchase infrastructure that Apple has. So there is actually not much new under the sun except the change in policy around uh, what apps, what kinds of apps you can use it with. And that, of course, continues to come with the giant asterisk that if it quote, doesn't make sense, unquote, Apple may yet reject your app. So um, what we saw in the session was basically we've got some new uh, capabilities around subscriptions, which are great. But at the end of the day, um, a developer still has a ton of work to do in order to implement auto-renewing subscriptions in their app. Um, But it's just that with a policy change, you can do it in a lot more situations that you may not have been able to do before. I know last week we talked about this, and Tim, you say that you've uh, implemented an auto-renewing subscription, which you got rejected for, right? That's Uh, right. But you're familiar with the amount of work that goes into it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So I can only imagine the pain that you must have suffered at being rejected for it and being forced to kind of throw that work in the garbage, basically. Well, that that end, we had to refactor the whole login process for our app, too, because that was part of it, right? So Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, so... um, I'm I'm really kind of disappointed uh, because the because auto renewing subscriptions are um, I think an important thing that that needs to be more available to developers. At the same time, um, you have to do a lot of work to make it happen, and you know, of approval of the the in app purchase um, programming guide 
and in particular the auto-renewing subscription sections, uh, will give you some sense of the back and forth that you need, the server infrastructure you need, and the communication between your app, Apple, and your server to make it all work together. And so it's non-trivial, I'll just put it that way. Oh, yeah, it's not the... the holy grail that we thought it was a couple of weeks ago right when we first yeah. heard about it well that's yeah. the thing i was really hoping it would be just a switch that you flip <laughs> it is most yeah. certainly not that hmm. well it just goes to show that you can't uh listen to too many rumors before wwc you actually have to wait for yeah exactly yeah well even the news from phil schiller you know talking to john gruber and as gruber reported it uh gave no sense of the the way that it was supposed to be implemented right like we, there, it really was just speculation on our part until we could finally see it in the sec in the session. So as a follow up, I put uh, um, the talk show with Phil Schiller and Craig Federighi on the uh, on the notes. Did you watch any of that or, or read any of that, Aaron? I listened to that show. Yeah, um, I and, listen to the talk show every week, so that was oh okay. Yeah, something I listened to. Um, it was good. I mean, it was entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, they are are very like Phil Schiller and Craig Federighi. They're they're so on message they are well trained and they are just excellent at their jobs mm-hmm. as we know uh so they you know have the power to both entertain on stage answer real questions um yeah. but still not give away too much um in terms of you know information that they don't want to share obviously sure, sure. so um it, it was it was fun it was a fun interview and if anybody's into this stuff they should totally listen to it uh, did you watch did you i watched the video the QuickTime version of it um because i guess they, they videotaped it and it was mm-hmm. interesting to see the sort of body language when you know craig Federini was leaning forward when they were talking about the areas that he was interested in and as soon as gruber said he was sitting between gruber and phil schiller and, and as soon as uh, gruber asked about subscriptions craig Federini like sat back in the chair so he'd be out of the line of fire right yeah 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 <laughs> which was kind of funny but and and just as a follow-up to our own show, um, Craig Federighi actually says he does like the sandwiches that they serve at uh, WWDC. And <laughs> Phil Schiller said if, if that's the worst thing that comes out of WWDC, then they're doing a good job, right? That people don't like the sandwiches. So there you go, Jaime. Which is true. I mean, I, I, I guess it's like wishing someone to break a leg before they go on stage so that you can ward off the hexes, I suppose. Like, <laughs> I, I, okay, I, I'll, I'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to go back and continue our conversation about Joist? Yeah, so um, I didn't realize, as I said before, that they had that many uh, developers on staff. I mean, they were they always, they always seem to be looking for people. Yeah, right? actually, I was one of the first people they interviewed. I have that distinction. Oh yeah, uh, oh. I met with the founder Justin and uh, discussed being one of their first. I think it was the first. Because mm-hmm. I don't think they had any other iOS developers at the time. Right. Um, it was a non-starter, though, because they insisted on having the developer in the office. Oh, okay. So right. it just didn't work out. And then they, they went and hired everyone else they can get their hands on. And uh, in the ensuing discussion on Twitter around this the article about them moving to San Francisco... A lot of people said, you know, I'd interviewed with with Joist. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, yeah. Like, a lot of people have interviewed with Joist um, hmm. and ended up not working with them for various reasons. Uh, it's just funny that, you know, for, you know, Toronto's not a big place, it seems. No. <laughs> in no, a lot of true. ways. Uh, you know, in our community, it's, it seems quite small. So, I'm kind of of two minds with that whole Joist article. And I guess mm-hmm. we'll have to put this in the show notes now. That'd be good, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, with Joyce picking up and moving, they were, uh, you know, very quickly growing startup that uh, helps building contractors manage their material purchases. So it's a it's a pretty straight vertical market application, right? With um, 
you know, um, costing and, and material analysis and the way that they were make money, at least this is the story I had when I first met with them was that they had deals with places like the home Depot. Uh, and when a contractor went and purchased their actual building materials from home Depot, the joist would get a kickback. And so that was their revenue strategy. So they were recommending people to go to buy from specific places like that, and, and uh, they would get, like, essentially a commission, I guess, right? Yeah, exactly. Commission. Yeah, kickback is kind of a dirty word. Commission, I it think, is. is a better word. Whatever. <laughs> commission. So that was their revenue strategy. Um, I guess it's, it has worked to a certain extent, because I'm not sure uh, they may have had some VC funding, uh, but I think that they were they were making revenue from early on, at least. And so now with 100 people on staff, they decided to knock out 60 of them and take the 40 that decided that they wouldn't mind uprooting their lives and Mm -hmm. moving to San Francisco, where they felt that they could get access to better developers. Oh, really? Serious (laughs) indictment to the Toronto developer scene, Um, (laughs) if if that does uh, turn out to be true. I I Mm. don't believe that, um, because I know that there are lots of developers in Toronto. Uh, I just don't, don't see them being very mobile though yeah. you know whenever we get together at our bi-monthly meetups the taco meetup we talk about the the things that we're working on now and you know what other jobs are available and there's always work available uh mm-hmm. the problem is, is i i'm i'm guessing here i think the problem is simply that the jobs are not paying that much right yeah i think that that's that's my experience as well um no, the, the, I think the expectation is a lot lower than than what the what we perceive our values as. I guess, right? For um, sure. And and then when you compare what what we could be making in say the New Yorks or the or the Silicon Valleys or San Francisco areas, um, it's pitiful as even for what we do get, you know. So, but it is. But by that logic, that doesn't make any sense for. The <laughs> I was just about to say that they're going to yeah they're going to move to a place where they'll have to pay possibly double what they're paying people out there yeah that's what i'm saying like so i was going to ask you that exact question mark so if they move down to, to san francisco I, I mean is it like you can't swing a cat and not hit a developer in 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 that area san francisco like there's tons of developers on the street with cardboard signs saying we'll code for for food or no as <laughs> as i understand it it's it's tough to find ios developers these days. exactly yeah, i don't care yeah. where you are it's tough mm-hmm. to find developers. And mm-hmm. if and if you're in San Francisco, I think it's even harder. Because well, you yeah, have the cost to of be, living is gonna be way higher, right? Cost Never mind that. Yeah. yeah, it's not just that. It's like you've got a lot of very well known and well regarded companies that are constantly hiring developers mm-hmm. and who are paying mm-hmm. top dollar and have crazy benefits. And then mm-hmm. a, a company like Joyst is gonna walk in. Do you think these guys are just gonna walk in? <laughs> Well, I don't know. It depends. Okay. On, I guess it depends on the fu- kind of funding they've got, right? No, yeah. they don't have the kind of funding that they they're going to need. I am right. I am extremely skeptical that well, they're that, going that to might make be it. part of their. And this is all speculation now, but that might be part of their reason for moving to have better access to the venture capital uh, down, yeah, down here as opposed to in Toronto. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's no mystery. I've talked to venture capitalists capitalists before who tell me that that Toronto is sort of a very old school money kind of venture capital place and. And for the last little while, they haven't really got the whole mobile development thing. They don't understand it, right? So that was—I mean, I don't know how old that information is, or whether that even holds true. Because as I said, I, I posted an article here um, oh, yeah. by Josh Gutman about um, how he thinks Toronto is poised to become the next place for um, 
tech startups to come because, you know, New York is expensive to, to support uh, developers, you know, down the Bay Area as well, right? So, Oh, is Josh Gutman a, a VC from New York City? I, be- I believe he is, yes. Well, that's what it says right here. Yeah. He's a technology entrepreneur turned venture capitalist living in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is a post in his blog. He was on Metro Morning on uh, RCBC uh, the other day talking to um, uh, Matt Galloway about uh, about his ideas, you know. That, N- not that Matt was, Galloway, the developer. No, Matt Galloway, the CBC radio host. <laughs> the morning host. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Oh, it was originally published on TechCrunch. That's what I thought. So, yeah. So, so it's certainly possible that, that part of a deal with an existing VC out here is that they move out here in order to get their funding because right. possibly the VC will want to put some of their own people on the board or, or on the management team or, or something like that. Sure. And the condition is that they have to be located here. I, and I, again, I have no knowledge of this. I'm just, I'm just speculating here, but, but that's, that wouldn't surprise me if it was something like that. Yeah. And I've talked to a few people who, you know, in, in my interviewing process or whatever, who, you know, have their eyes on, on their, their t- tell me as part of their spiel that they're talking to venture capitalists down in, in the Valley or the Bay Area. And, and I'm sure, like Mark said, you, you kind of want to keep an eye on your money, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and so the TV show Silicon Valley isn't helping with that, right? Right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Nonetheless, I, I really suspect that they're in for a rough ride if they get down there. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> And also, you know, they have to basically rebuild in a lot of ways too, right? They've they've lost sixty yeah. percent of their staff, mm-hmm. which uh, you know that's gotta gotta have an effect on the operations of the company. That's true. I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. Like Mark, Mark, like Mark said, it could be uh, could be part of the deal. Yeah, there's there's a million reasons. I mean, for all we know, and again, pure speculation, uh, the sixty percent of the staff wasn't very effective. So. They mm-hmm. see this as a move forward, getting rid of that sixty percent, and who knows though? I, I don't know anything about this, so I'm just making this stuff up. I don't want to cast any kind of aspersions, but but yeah. anything is possible. Yeah, yeah. Quick um, question: What's the um, hiring regulation area like in in Canada? So uh, in the United States, like you can generally get rid of somebody for just about any reason you want as long as it doesn't cover <laughs> like you know race color creed religion th- that sort of thing yeah um as opposed to many of the european union countries where it's almost impossible to get rid of somebody you know unless they like actively punch somebody in the face and you have it on video and all sorts of like real direct things and as a consequence in the united states people will tend to hire and fire rather quickly and in Europe, it's much more like conservative. Like, oh man, that's a huge risk we're taking by hiring someone. What, what's well, it like yeah. in in Canada? What's the the law situation? Well, like? I mean, in, in Ontario, we sort of we have a um, like a three month probation uh, period where uh, either the, the employer or the employee can can terminate without much of an explanation. Um, but generally speaking, you know, uh, depending on the number of years you served a company. Um, you can pay out a severance and um, that generally, you know, if, if you want to get rid of somebody, you pay them, you know, a week's salary for a, 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 week, a year or two of service kind of thing. Um, and then there's, there also may be something in their contracts as well. And a, a lot of companies hire uh, from contract firms, right? So that the, the, the person actually doing the code is a contractor who works for a, a corporation that manages, you know, a a pool of staff, like, I guess, like, what do you call staffing pools, I guess, right? 
but yeah, you, you, there's you have you have to be careful about it. But at the end of the day, you can usually there's a sort of you know what, what they call a progressive discipline where you have you know you kind of give them a warning and then you give them a written warning and then you know you sort of escalate it up and you document and that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, if you if you pay them a salary or a severance. Um, that usually is enough to sort of uh, make any future lawsuits go away. We're not very litigious here, I don't think. I mean, people do get to, people do take companies to court for wrongful dismissals, but generally speaking, if if the company's willing to pay severance, that usually negates that, right? Because the most you're going to get out of uh, a settlement, at least in, in Ontario or in Canada, is is uh, a, a fair severance, right? What do you know about it, Aaron? Nothing. Yeah, I mean, fairly huge. It's 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 more um, uh, it's more in favor of the worker uh, than it yeah. is in the United States. So uh, it's not as bad as in Europe, though. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, there are definite worker protections that we have in Canada and or in Ontario in particular that yeah. uh, that lay out pretty much like what you said. I mean, there there are wrongful dismissals that employers can be brought up on. Mm-hmm. and get in trouble over uh but it, there are definite ways that you can get rid of an employee uh through uh severance agreements that yeah. uh that are not you know like crazy in favor of the employee but that you know keep everybody from going broke i guess is the whole point yeah 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 for a yeah. startup though laying off 60 percent of their staff would be an enormous hit in the, if they paid severance so i can't imagine well i don't but, i don't know in this case but but that would be huge. Yeah. yeah, but by the same token, most of those staff could be contractors as well. Like, they well, could that's be, true. Yeah. yeah. They no, they don't hire. Con- Again, that was that they was exactly oh, why right, I didn't right, get right. working for them. They don't mm. hire contractors. Uh, but they did say, like, here, let me put this article in the show notes um, just so that we have it. They did say that they were providing severance agreements for all those people, and that they the joist themselves say that it was a generous one. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, so. but everything that I'm hearing kind of makes sense to me that it would have a tendency to depress wages in general because uh, as an employer, you would be less willing to pay out knowing that you might have to accommodate a severance package, like by law, accommodate, not because you feel like it and, and you're doing it out of the goodness of your heart. Obviously. Right. Yeah. 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 So it, it depends on the terms of the... Of the because there are hiring contracts too, like you know, and and especially in in um, intellectual property kind of areas where we all sort of run, there there's also rules about that kind of stuff too that that people sign up for and agree to. And I can't tell you the number of developers I've talked to over the years who, you know, kind of read a, read the contract and kind of go, oh, I guess it's okay, and sign it. And I'm like, you you're you're a fool for doing that. Right? So <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, that's why they, we have lawyers, and a few hundred bucks will give you some peace of mind, right? So. So, did you guys want to li- maybe list a couple of your favorite video sessions um, from Dub Dub? Sure. Well, I mean, clearly for me, the the there was a couple of good ones, um, and for a couple of personal reasons. One is obviously the the uh, Swift Playgrounds one was cool. But my friend John or Jonathan Penn and Jaime and I met on the same day at that 360i Dev, and he did the presentation on. Uh, in the middle of the Swift uh, Playgrounds talk, the one where he talked about how you build Swift Playgrounds for the edge for the app, where you can um, deal with resources and sharing code, and you asked me specifically the question, which I didn't know at the time because I had we recorded before that that uh, talk was even broadcast or presented. Um, and he sort of goes through the whole folder structure, and I'd forgotten about that. I should I should have known that from working with Playgrounds last year that or for the last year that. 
um, you, you have resource folders and you can, so you can share bits of code and you can, uh, you were asking me like whether you can build, you know, um, a bit more sophisticated apps than, than just a single page of code. Right. Um, so it was a good, it was a good talk about, uh, about that. So I really enjoyed the Swift Playgrounds one and they, they did a couple of things. One is they talked about the, the interface of the tool and they talked about how to build playground books for education or presentation purposes. And then they, uh, the last part of it was they, they showed using play, uh, playgrounds as a coder to sort of write code and test out scenarios and use some of the new uh, gameplay kit uh, uh, frameworks. So they have this new noise, um, this noise, noise ability where you can use noise to generate um, randomly generated uh, uh, scenes and, and filters and stuff like that in gameplay kit, which they demonstrated on the, on the iPad. So it, was, it to me, uh, indicates that it can handle quite sophisticated work. Yeah, one it, thing that's kind of become clear is how capable it is. Like it is it is truly all the tools that are available to Xcode for compiling and running code. Yeah. Uh packaged on the iPad. I've had a chance to play with it myself. Um I my friend Stefan has has an iPad Pro and had that on it, so I was able to try it on Monday night. And it really is something else. Uh you know, like right down to the compiler errors that you get. Um it it's the same stuff that you would see in Xcode, like same wording and everything, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so like when you, when you make a mistake, it still gives you the same warnings. Like it's, it's under the covers. It's the same thing as Xcode. Yeah. But I, I really like the shortcut bar that appears above the keyboard when you're, when you're typing out the code. Um, and it's, it's sort of like, a, it's a mix of typing and tapping, which is kind of sort of how you work on an iPad, right? Did you experience that when you yeah, were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a he had the smart keyboard attached, so I actually oh. didn't find myself using that um, that much. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. It's it seemed fine. I, I tried some of the. There were some you know interactions that I found um, incorrect or or wrong. Um, let me give an example. Oh yes, okay. So you type type a class name. Type uh, class space um, test class and open a curly brace and then start typing your class right now later you want to go back and make it a subclass uh make it a subclass of ui view okay and then um you to do that you would tap on the class name right to put your cursor down so that i could type the colon and the but you can't do that oh Um, really because what it does is instead it highlights the whole thing yeah, it wants to help you, yeah. Cause, yeah, because yeah. it wants to help you, and it gives you the braces that you can then move and, you know, in- encapsulate some other code elsewhere on the page, right? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I was really flummoxed for a few minutes until I had to put the cursor above the class declaration and then um, cursor in with, with the keyboard, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, it worked, but uh, I don't think that was their intention. I don't know. There should be a way, I guess, to to break through the selection mode into the edit mode, and maybe there is, and I just missed it. Mm-hmm. But overall, I can see like it, there's no question in my mind that this this is you know for reals this this uh, whole programming environment. It's super sure. exciting. But I'll say this, Tim. I don't think it's answered my question that I had last week about okay. <laughs> about putting multiple files together to create like a project. Now we talked about it. Uh, in the sense of putting together a learning resource, like a playground mm-hmm. uh, yeah. book, what they're calling it, right? Um, but now I want to say I'm, I'm building an application that I can run in that live view. And um, I want to have, like, say, two, three, four, five files that, um, you know, containerize my class structure, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't find a way to do that. 
Okay, so that's that's something that maybe they'll work on. And, you know, file your radars, I guess. But uh, if it seems like, you know, and oh, one other thing, um, I want to be able to export my apps out of the playground yeah, and yeah. to my springboard. I want to take an, an app that I oh, write there right, and I right. want to turn it into something I can launch from the springboard. Right, right, yeah. How would, wouldn't that be killer? That'd be killer. Yeah, I mean, like I said, we last week when we were trying, we were playing around with it on day one, we kind of, um, we wanted to sort of share, see, because there is an export uh, feature in, an import and an export uh, feature in Playground, Swift Playgrounds. And um, I wasn't able to get that to work. Like, I, I could send stuff out, but uh, the other people on the receiving end couldn't, you know, open up the playground, as it were, right? So Right. But yeah, I'm talking about compiling the code into an. No, I understand what you're saying. You want an icon on the desktop that you can, or the Springboard that you can tap on and, and launch for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, from we talked about this uh, way back when when we talked about what why why you couldn't have a proper Xcode on on an iPad with the iOS the way it is now, um, or yeah, the way it was then, um, because you 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 need to be able to run a compiler and a bunch of other you know uh, Unix commands to link together the uh, the executable right the, the binary right so that and that's kind of with the sandbox environment that we have um, currently only Apple could create an environment for us to be able to do that right 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 but you know I, so I, I think haven't it's... used this but uh, correct me if I'm wrong but it it doesn't support a lot of the things that you would need to build a full app like. Interface Builder, for example, or the right. or the core data uh, editor, right? I mean, no, no, so. it doesn't. But you can build all that stuff in code. Like I, I had a table view controller running. Yeah, you know, yeah. and yeah. you know, you can do anything in UIKit. You know, as long as you don't mind. Oh, well, sure, you can if if you yeah, if you want to do it in code. You can't. Why would you? Yeah, and and you. But but you can author. You can author um, uh, elements on in Xcode eight on the Mac. Package them up into this format, and then and then use them. So theoretically, you could create a UI kit element like a table view, put it into a, into a, into the resources, and, and I'm just spitballing here, mm-hmm. and then open it up and and link to it in uh, yeah in the playground. Like because you can you can import you know gameplay kit, you can import UI kit, you can import foundation. I think foundation probably comes with, but um, all that sort of stuff that you would expect to be able to import into a regular app, um, right. you'd be able right. to. But and and right. it doesn't have you know like it doesn't have all the things that xcode has it doesn't have like you know the, the view debuggers and you know the the all the new new hotness that we're seeing in, in xcode 8 or even xcode 7 or 6 you know so but uh custom frameworks dynamic frameworks can you does it support that probably not um once you create yourself you mean yeah yeah i'm not sure i guess uh, yeah, I or third that. party I mean, how would you get it in yeah. Well, yeah, you'd, exactly. you'd have to put you'd have to put it into the into that resource folder, which lives underneath the the. I mean, you couldn't do it. I don't think you could add it in the playground. You'd have to create a playground file, package it in, and then send it over to the iPad, and and then be able to access it if that's how yeah. if, if if that was possible. Right. Right. So, well, there's there's no doubt it's it's possible. I mean, it it could, it could be done if they wanted to, but I, I get the feeling that that's not their intent here. There, this wasn't really meant for building full full-fledged production apps this is more meant for a learning environment yeah and it's and don't forget education is huge at apple i mean that's sure. kind of that's yeah. that's you know they, they want to get them while they're young if you know what i'm saying right yeah so, absolutely yeah. yeah yeah but you know i 
I, I would repudiate, repudiate the notion that this is just for education. I yeah, really don't believe yeah. that. I mean, yeah. they no question are putting a lot of focus on that. But the capabilities are there for doing so much more that I can't help but regard this as just the groundwork for something that's going to be enhanced in a significant way going forward. Uh, because all the pieces are there for it. Yeah, and you could do the math. I mean, you know, Jonathan got hired at Apple in 2014, let's say. And so if you think about how long it's been since then, I mean, they've obviously worked, we can speculate, of course, that they've been working on something like this for a long, long time. And they probably have plans that go well into the future as well. You know? Yeah, I look forward to a time when, you know, your project on your iPad could be interchangeable with, with what you have on the Mac. And that app may not be called Swift Playgrounds anymore, but, uh, you know, you can see that the technology is, is definitely available for doing that. I'm telling you, you got to bring back Dash Code. Uh, no. No, you don't. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, when you consider Apple as, a, as a, a full range of product company, especially a hardware company, uh, how, this fits, how this would fit into that strategy. So, so Apple has gotten a lot of... Uh, bad press, negativity, bad results from education recently concerning iPads. Uh, in fact, there's there's been some high-profile stories, I don't know if everyone's heard them, uh, about schools moving away from iPads back to PCs or, really? Chromebooks. or computers, you know. Uh, yeah, it, for for a couple of reasons. One is is cost, and Chromebooks certainly fit that bill. But the other one is that they're they're not considered at least in quotes they're not considered real real computers good for things like coding uh and and i remember reading an article specifically saying that i could probably dig it out somewhere uh but but this is an issue because as you said Tim, that that education is is a big part of and always has been a big part of apple strategy so if the ipad is is getting pushed out of schools that's a big blow to apple and in particular a big blow to the ipad because that's one of the real places where the iPad has had has had some strength right getting into 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 schools so so this might have been maybe not purely this but but it might have been a a, a perfect strategy for Apple to to reestablish a big fo- foothold back in schools and it doesn't necessarily make sense from a business point of view for them to shift the the pro developer uh, setup from the desktop slash laptop to an iPad. Yeah, and, and as I said, I think the tooling isn't isn't really there. I mean, it's amazing what you can do in Xcode eight. We can probably talk about that too. With, I mean, I, I because of my my role as writing the top ten videos at WWC to watch, um, I've had to watch a number of them, and there's some common themes that come out of all of the talks, um, which we could talk about as well. But, but some of them are the tooling in Xcode to support game like gameplay kit and um, you know the memory debuggers and stuff like that that we talked about. The, the, what is yeah, it, the yeah. module graph, it, visual graph, module. Yeah, debugger, yeah. memory debugger. It, yeah. it, running instruments on the iPad, I think, would be a pretty big challenge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, well, I mean, you could probably run instruments like just one sure. one tool, but sure. not, yeah, not yeah. like maybe maybe the uh, what do you call it, leaks or something like that. But you couldn't run right. the whole suite, right? Right, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate we you know and we've speculated about getting a pro OS for especially for the iPad Pro lines, but um, uh, it's that's possibly some time off in the future, right? Well, again, there's a difference between 
pro-users and pro-developers. Yeah, that's true. And we can certainly have pro-user apps like, you know, uh, Microsoft Office type apps. Yeah. That are that are very or, or Adobe Photoshop type. Well, apps yeah, there's, that are, there's photography that are, and music right, and, and all kinds right. of other things. Yeah, people yeah. use their iPads for. And, and that's but that's pretty different, especially to someone like Apple. That's pretty different from having the developers working on their lower end uh, in terms of cost uh, machines. Well, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of like, like uh, Playgrounds is kind of a, on on Xcode is kind of a, a scrapbook, if you will, or, or a sketchbook, right. Right? right? And I think what they've done is they've moved that capability over to the iPad device, right? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. you follow people like Ayaka Nonaka, who's you know tweeting from the train that she's on her commuter train, you know, working on code on her iPad or on her iPad, which is cool. You know? Yeah. No, don't get me wrong. I, I think it's a great thing. I'm just I'm just a little bit more skeptical that. You know, next year at this time, we'll be talking about Xcode on the iPad. Oh yeah, because <laughs> I I think there's a lot more to it than yeah than just uh, porting the code over. We have to have an array of iPads to do that, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, so so we've we've uh, I take it you guys have watched a lot of the number of the videos by now, or um, have you sort of seen some? Like I like some of the explanations behind. Uh, what they've been doing with Swift renaming, some we speculated about some of those things. You know, why they're removing things out of Swift uh, in in 3.0, and they in the Swift what's new in Swift presentation. They talked about um, how they go about the the selection process, which I think we kind of all sort of knew uh, about how. Yeah, they would pretty be, much everything to do yeah. with Swift three we knew already. Like there was yeah. there was no news here because it's all out in the open, right? But we were speculating as to why, for instance, you know they they put the first argument back into a function, or why they why they're dropping. I like the fact that they're dropping redundancies, like you know you've got a URL dot you know. Uh, connection ns like ns url connection becomes url connection because that's what it is you know the ns kind of for the newbie kind of confuses people as to why it was there you know what i mean yeah yeah swift is pretty far removed from next step at this point that's true that's true yeah, yeah. you know and um but i mean that, but that talk about how swift renaming has it came up in the platform state of the union it came up in what's new in swift it's come up in a number of of other places that uh, were that kind of important stuff. And like I said, the memory, memory, um, I gotta get the name of it. Hang on. Um, the memory object graph, memory object graph. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty cool. That's been demonstrated in a number of different places. But yeah. You're, and you're right. That for me, like, um, I'm a very visual person. I like to sketch out, you know, a, a scheme when I'm working on a database, you know, on, on a piece of paper or something like that. Or, you know, I like to use tools like, um, Omnigraffle to make UML diagrams to sort of work out flows and things like that. I can't sort of do that in my head. And, and having a tool like this to sort of see, okay, well, that's where the objects are and how they're connected is, is really kind of cool. So I, I talked about a few of the talks or videos that I had watched last week uh, that yeah. I liked, like the app, the Xcode app signing one I thought was great. I mean, that, that's just uh, fixing a, a problem that's just, that was just a real pain and just shouldn't have ever shouldn't have been there uh and it and it, it looks like it just fixes it makes that problem go away which is great fantastic uh i also like the optimizing app startup time i talked about that one last week mm-hmm. uh one i didn't talk about and was going to be my pick this week but i guess i can talk about it now unless you want me to wait tim what do you think what do you think guys talk about it now okay so what's <laughs> new in what's new in core data okay was great uh, at least for me, I'm a big fan of Core Data. I use it a lot, and 
uh, they've introduced some really, really nice new features to Core Data this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I'll, I'll go into them a little bit. I won't go into too much detail because well, so I talk for that. But. So, I, I did watch that piece, and, and that was one of the ones on my selection. I didn't include it in the article um, because it's a bit dry, but... So I do have some questions. So can you explain to me sort of query generations and how what that means or how that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So query generations are are a pretty nice thing. So really, it's something you only would need to worry about if you're working on multiple threads, really, uh, because what what is involved is is missing faults. Uh, now, okay, there's a little background here. What is a fault? Uh, core data. Let's see. How do I talk about this without going into huge amount of detail and taking up half the call? But yeah, but, you're going to be uh, yeah. <laughs> a, long time a fault. Very simple. Watch, watch the video, uh, and then yeah. and then uh, then you can come back. Yeah, come back after. But uh, we'll basically, a fault is a representation of an object from the database right. that Core Data can load without actually loading the full object. Mm-hmm. Now the problem is that a, a fault is inside of a certain context and a context is loaded from disk and then isn't necessarily up to date with what's on the disk in the database. So if you're on another thread deleting something from your database, then you can still have in your context a fault related to or representing an object that's no longer in your database, doesn't exist, it's gone. Right. But yeah. your context doesn't know about it. So if you try to use it, it will try to do what's called firing the fault, which is load the actual object. And that will fail. And in the past, that would crash your app. Very mm, bad. Right, right. So what they're doing now is they've come up with this concept of of a generate query generations, which basically says that when you do a set of queries and you set have a set of of, uh, of objects or faults, then those will be kept as a as a unit until you update them. So so right. if you go and update your database on some other thread, then your your uh, uh, context that you have this fault in will not be affected by that change until you say okay update to the new changes so what what this allows you to do then is keep working on your main thread or whatever and accessing these faults and it will be able to find them in the database even though you've deleted it in another thread Hmm. so you'll never get these missing fault crashes again which is a great thing Hmm. because once you when you get those they're they're very very hard to uh diagnosed and very very hard to fix so so this is a great thing when they showed that one slide that said no you know no more missing faults i kind of cheered a little bit (laughs) (laughs) you in the crowd yep yep okay so So that's a great thing our heads hurt a lot already so yeah yeah you can trim that down a little bit that was kind of detailed but it's a but it's it is sort of a complicated thing which is why they they spent you know a good good chunk of the of the presentation talking about it yeah yeah uh so i I recommend that you go and and uh, watch it the the biggest thing for the average user, I would say, is the new way of setting up a core data stack. So in the standard way, before these updates, setting up a, data, a core data stack is is like a full page of code mm-hmm. uh, because you have to set up your persistent store coordinator, your persistent store, your managed object model, your and then your managed object context and all that. And it's just all this boilerplate code that pretty much you just copy and paste. Sure. Uh, or it becomes, you know, it's created as part of your your project setup. Yeah. Well, they've come up now with a new object called an NS persistent container, which kind of does all that for you. Right. And now right. you can set up a stack in like three or four lines. Which yeah, is I was going to say they've reduced a whole whack of lines of code that that 
people yep. kind of scratch their heads over. Yep. Cool. Yep. Uh, okay. Uh, there, there are a couple of other points that, uh, one in particular that I, that I really like as well is that they fixed the whole problem of, of blocking the main thread when you save your contexts, mm-hmm. which was, which was kind of an issue before. Right. Uh, and there were all sorts of hoops you had to jump through and tricks to play to, to keep that from happening. And they seem to have fixed that by changing the way that the, that the locks are done behind the scenes. So that should be a good thing too. Lots of other stuff too, but, but watch the video. That's, that's, uh, that's a lot of detail. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it definitely, definitely a must see if you're inter- into, into core data. Yep. Absolutely. And if you're not, you should be. Yeah. Go and watch the free videos on realm that Myron's put together. I mean, did you have a, a video or two that you were delighted with? I haven't gotten that far into the videos because I've been um, just super busy. So I'm trying to rededicate myself to do at least one video uh, per night, like as a minimum, because uh, that's you know, not too bad. It's half an hour, 45 minutes, let's say. Um, so two that I've seen so far, well, I guess it's three, but but one of them is really a part one and a part two. Uh, the improving existing apps with modern best practices. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. a good one. Yeah, yep, that was a good one. I've got some good stuff. Um, even some things that um, that I didn't know regarding, uh, like I knew that you could do PDF bits for um, your icons, right? You could do like a, the vector graphic PDF, and, and instead of having actual assets, you'll have this scalable vector. Um, I didn't realize it could do some things, like you could have mix and match. I thought it was all or nothing. Like, you know, either uh, you have the one vector and it just makes a 1x, a 2x, and a 3x version as needed. Uh, You actually could do a, oh, well, it turns out for 3x, we're going to add this completely different icon for that. So that was was news to me. Um, Also, they talked about dependency injection, which is Mm -hmm. great because just about everything in iOS prevents you from doing that in like any easy way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you kind yeah, of have to yeah. work, work, you swim upstream for that. So uh, it makes me hopeful for the future on that. Um, the, the second one is um, it's more for the, like the meeting and the content than it was the, the presentation. So I'm, I'm talking about the um, iMessage apps and stickers part one and two. Right. And, and I would say that they were pretty dry and I could tell that the presenters weren't exactly um, uh, like this is their first go around, you know, they're not experienced. Um, but if you really sit through the content, you're like, oh, wow, this is actually really easy to do when you want to do the the custom um, iMessage apps or you want to do the yeah. custom stickers and the out of the box capability that you get for stickers where it requires zero coding whatsoever, just drag and drop some some files and zip it off through Xcode. It's fantastic. I think it's a huge like business opportunity for on, at least on day one. Like that's easy money right there. Well, except that there's going to be so many people doing it that it there'll just be this. You'll get lost in the in the in the flood of of sticker apps. I think. Oh sure. I mean, but that's no different than like actual apps, right? So well, it, it's for- a little. It's but it's it's much easier to make a sticker app than any other kind of app, right? Because you don't even need code, you just load up a bunch of pictures and ship it. So, so I, I get. I'm thinking. I'm assuming that there's going to be thousands and thousands of sticker apps available on, on day. One. 
Yeah, but if Jaime has his way, there'll only be one MTJC sticker pack. Well, maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true, right? Like like branded opportunities, uh, it doesn't really matter if there's 10 million. The one you want is the one you want. Uh, well, that's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. But I'm talking from like a return on investment standpoint. Like you could spend, you know, a week to two weeks, like on a minimum on like using, you know, some new API like Siri kit or something. And creating yeah. a, a whole new app that does, you know, some sort of interesting thing with it. Or you could spend about an hour developing, you know, like 10 sticker apps. And yeah. just from a shotgunning standpoint, like that seems like yeah. easy. Yeah. So I agree with you about those talks. I actually thought the second one was quite good. Uh, the the one that talked about the, the interactiveness of these new apps where you send a message to someone else and they can interact with your with your with the with the message that you sent and then send it back updated and and i've been thinking about some things to do with that uh that i don't want to mention but uh uh i've actually started playing with the with with the code a little bit it's it's actually pretty cool stuff Hmm, interesting yeah yeah and the the other good thing about it from um like a marketing standpoint is that it has the attribution back to the app store uh or Mm -hmm, app stores mm -hmm. uh, for like the sticker store that's yep and 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 iMessage apps that's like you normally don't get that stuff for free right you're normally trying right. to do like do deep linking which we talked about before or other attribution tricks or uh, modal pop-ups in some mobile web version that takes you to different content and other bits and this one is like right there if i send you a sticker that has my face on it um you'll get the sticker you'll see it and then you'll see a oh go download this sticker pack if you want more and that's that's also like a nice route that we didn't really have before. Yeah. One thing I was thinking about there is how long will it be before this controversy that I'm about to describe happens? Uh, someone puts out a sticker pack, which is really a bunch of just ads in stickers. And every time you send a text with that sticker, it, it registers it somewhere with the brand and you get paid for sending out that. Wow. That message. Well, that yeah. how would that work? I mean, the the source would have to be some server somewhere, right? Well, but you have an app, right? You have an, you have a that that could just it's just a, it's just an analytic, right? Just analytics of some sort. A sticker app doesn't let you put code in there. It's it can just, can it, or is it just a well, UI for, image? for the custom ones? Not not the for custom the, ones. You do a custom one write an actual sure. app, not a sticker sure. app. Sure, yeah. A, sti- a, a not sticker app that actually provides the functionality of a sticker app. Sure. Wow. Hmm. So, yeah. So, so I, I wonder what Apple's rules will be about that because that's pretty. Yeah you know, that that's pretty that that's pretty uh, potentially manipulative of of well if if they're advertising apps then it's manipulative of App Store ratings which Apple has come against pretty pretty strongly uh yeah it'll be interesting to see how they how they handle that Hmm. so aaron did you have a video or two that we're back to you yeah um giver i had a couple that i really liked in the developer tool segment um stuff around swift was you know i was just riveted to be honest with you on uh, a few of these sessions i don't want to go into too much detail on them but uh they were really um uh, very appealing to me. So, like, uh, what's new in Swift? The API design guidelines um, and the protocol and value-oriented uh, yeah. programming in UIKit mm-hmm. apps, which I super enjoyed. 
um, where they demonstrated uh, using protocol-oriented SWIFT techniques uh, in a model view controller context, like for the uh, the controller and the view, um, where you know every example we'd seen prior to this was was always talking about model style code, and so that was really enlightening. Uh, very much enjoyed that one that I also loved uh, the server side SWIFT. Uh, where they had the IBM folks on the stage to demonstrate Katura, um, and also, you know, parenthetically uh, provide some advertising for their own Bluemix server strategies, um, which you can safely ignore if you like. But uh, the technology that they had there and that they were demonstrating with Swift on the server was awesome. I loved it, um, and I think that IBM's not even going far enough. I think that there's going to be a lot of great opportunities for developers to come up with ways to integrate client and server using Swift that go far beyond what Katura is doing. And I've got some ideas myself, but I think there are much smarter, more capable developers that can take it even further. So I got very excited when I read that one. So I have a question. So I, before we taped this, or actually last week, I found an article about IBM bringing Swift to the server. And I just wanted to ask, like, I've not seen that the... the uh, the presentation you talked about, but um, what do you think IBM entering this game does to people like PeopleSoft and and uh, that are that are working sort of with the open source kind of approach to um, server side Swift? I don't know what a PeopleSoft you, is. PeopleSoft, you mean you mean perfect? Perfectly soft. Sorry. Oh, perfect. perfect. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh. PeopleSoft are a different company altogether. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Couture yeah. is open source as well, um, so anyone can contribute to the project, right? Um, and it's just one of many, many, many Swift uh, open source HTTP servers, basically. So uh, just we've we've spoken about this in the past, you know, like uh, with Perfect as well as with Katura, um, among many, many others that basically take a, a, a request and return a response. And if you're um, at all familiar with um, uh, Sinatra, Ruby Sinatra, which is uh, very much like what Katura looks like from a from an interface standpoint anyway, uh, how you program it, then you can see where, you know, this thing stands among uh, its peers in terms of capability. It's a very solid foundation to build upon. And um, I think it's super interesting. Um, and if, you know, why is IBM doing it? Because they've got this partnership with Apple. And why Katura, the web server? Because they're building tons of apps. Uh, for iOS as part of their agreement with Apple, and they need a web component. And so why not build it out of the same stuff they're building the client from? So it makes all kinds of sense. It's funny that you say they're building tons of apps. In the talk, the guy mentioned that in four years, they had built 100 enterprise apps. That's yeah, what he said. I did yeah, catch I did. that. Yeah. That doesn't seem like a like a lot for IBM pers- personally. Yeah. But, uh, I've heard in other yeah. quarters too, though, Mark, that um, like I've run into some people that are actually working for IBM. Um, hmm. It doesn't sound like a terribly pleasant work environment um, from you know as a, as an iOS developer at least, because yeah. there just seems to be this, you know, and it's right there in the words, right? You know, the, the agreement was a hundred apps, and the, the fellow on stage said a hundred apps. I I had thought I'd heard elsewhere that it was well in in excess of a hundred apps, but. You know, I, I won't quibble yeah. over the number. Uh, Suffice yeah. to say, a hundred apps. You know, like having a team of people producing is is just because it's just about the number. Like, 
<laughs> that you know wh- where's the quality where's the you know the care about well it, it yeah it depends on how many people are, are working on it right if it's a, oh, if course. it's 100 people doing 100 apps that's that's nothing right but you know my point is like combine combine the focus on numbers with what i hear about it do the math i guess it it sounds like it's uh they're not putting together a terribly compelling place to work let's put it that way so those those are the those are the sessions that i was interested in um oh there was one other um their ui collection view <laughs> and i you know getting very specific here um, i just thought that was such a, a fun presentation to watch uh the stuff about uh changes that they're making to improve performance um but this was an unusual one for me in that they had two two fellows on stage uh doing the talk collaboratively um right yeah. which which is so much nicer than the standard approach of having one presenter on at the stage at a time um so this was really nice and they were sort of playing off of each other uh in a very engaging way so uh a much easier to watch talk than so many of them are from that perspective alone mm-hmm. tim did you happen to watch the music one i haven't had a chance to watch that one yet no, I, I uh, which one was that? No, I haven't watched any music ones per se. Okay. Yeah, there was one that was exceptional music experiences or something like that. But again, so, I haven't seen it. So I'm going to ask you guys a question. So we, we talked about numbers and Mark talked a couple of weeks ago, talked about how um, how you per- a number is a number until you perceive it in the grand scheme of things. And I'm trying to find in my notes here, do you remember how many Swift apps they said were on the app store? Was it 10,000? Well, or... apps that include Swift is what I think they said. It wasn't okay, yeah. like completely written in in Swift. Okay, so so, but I'm not I'm not talking about the the stuff in the in the I O in the operating systems or whatever. But like, so was it ten, was it around? Is that the number I've got in my head? Or yeah, it was something like ten thousand. Okay, so and but if you remember at the beginning of the keynote, Tim got up on stage and said, "There's two million apps on the App Store." Oh God. Yep. So <laughs> that, so, that. Yep. so so think about that number. So how is that? Let's. That's not even a percentage, right? Yeah, one percent would be uh, twenty thousand or two million. Hmm. Interesting number. I have to say, I don't know if I ever told you. I told. I just told the story on Roundabout, so I apologize to people, listeners of Roundabout. But Mark, you remember I told you about um, going to one of the labs, and I met this this uh, lady engineer. Um, that uh, showed me some really cool trick. I forgot what the yeah. command is. Yeah, it was the a, debugging trick. Yeah, right? so where you can she you can, talk. You yeah. can spit out. Yeah, she uh, that was the lady that that I met in the lab those many years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've always said the labs are a great place to go. And and yeah, she she's taught me that trick, and I've used it ever since to sort of spit out what's in a view, like st- pause your app, run the command. I forget what it's display something or other, regressive display or something like that, or recursive display. Um, People are yelling at the phones right now, but um, and it prints out it prints out like in in uh, in text in the console what is happening in your view at that point in time. And you can go back, you can go down through, find labels, find uh, pointers, um, see whether uh, objects are hidden or not, right in the code. And she she did a talk on auto layout. What's new in auto layout? And that's another thing that people are doing with auto layout. It's using that same similar command, I believe, to see what's happening in the constraints in their in their uh, views, right? So what is new in auto layout? So last year we yeah. had UI stack view. What's what's going on this year? There's NS grid view on the Mac, not available on iOS, but it's like a stack view except a grid. Uh, one thing that's kind of interesting and, and very surprising about, about auto layout is they're bringing back springs and struts. That just yeah, freaked that me was a real, head, real yeah. head scratcher. Is it? They're bringing, no, uh, so here's how I interpreted that part of the talk was... 
are they saying that for those of us who are late to the game and adopting auto layout that they're going to do it for us? Because I kind of sort of thought they did that under the hood anyway. Well, they positioned it as a way to uh, sort of slowly migrate into auto layout. Right. And uh, more for the early stages of, of creating your layout. So when you're initially throwing stuff onto a storyboard or nib, then you can use the strings and struts tools to make sure that they react appropriately when you change the size or rotate the device. Um, and then afterwards, as you are truly building it out, you would implement the proper uh, constraints. Right, right. Um, but another use is if yeah. you're using <laughs> purely stack views to, to build your layout, with stack views, you don't, uh, you don't use constraints explicitly anyway. Not inside so, the stack view, yeah. Right, right. Well, so what you could do is use the stack view to build your layout and don't use any constraints internally, and then use springs and struts outside to position the, the stack view, and then you're done. Yeah, there's no question that, the you know, in the basic cases, as you know, as with springs and struts prior to auto layout, that it can, it can handle a lot of the cases that you would, you know, would, would not require you to go into the constraints. You know, as long as it's simple enough, right? Right, mm. right. You know, you start yeah. getting complex, and then you, you're going to need the constraints. Yeah, but, yeah. But to me, it did sense. feel like there's a little bit of a step backwards. I, I, yeah, I that's the general consensus I'm hearing yeah. as well. Yeah. Sorry, Jaime, you were saying you were going to oh, say Oh, so the, the one you just mentioned, the scenario you just mentioned, Mark, makes a lot of sense. So if your primary bit of interface is done through the stack view and everything that's that's handled through there then your most likely thing to do is just like, yeah, yeah, just pin it to this, pin it, you know, pin the stack view to trailing and leading and, and margin and layout guide. Right. Um, so if I'm hearing correctly, and I've not seen this video, it's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah just, no, that's, just, that's exactly just right. Get yeah. some st- it's almost like giving you like standardized um, pinning for, for auto layout. Yeah. The okay. sense I really get from this is that, um, Apple is realizing, or you know, maybe they have the numbers to show this, that a lot of developers have not adopted auto layout, even after all these years. And it could be because you know the the uh, implementation was was poor to say the least from the f- earliest days, right? We had a lot yeah. of trouble no, with in, it. in iOS. In iOS six, it was terrible. Yeah, that's right. And I think it, a lot of developers probably felt so burned by it that they just swore off the thing. Um, and perhaps missing out on the fact that hey, for reals, it's it's working great now. Yeah. But um, you know, it's it seems possible that this is a, a concession to those developers to yeah. get them to use the constraints at least uh, through this sort of crutch, the springs and struts crutch <laughs> title. So speaking of speaking of <laughs> speaking of being burned, uh, did any of you watch any of the watch uh, OS talks? No, I did not. Oh. No, I've not gotten to those. What, what's Okay, so I, uh, and I have to admit, Sohail, our friend from uh, Taco and, and Ray Winterlake, um, he gave me his notes on the talk. I haven't watched it yet, but uh, the, what I found interesting about that was, is, you know, how they showed the, the, the watch apps, you know, springing to life instantly. Um, they're, I wonder if they're kind of doing a little bit of trickery here. What they're doing is they're, they're keeping your favorite apps, so the most frequently used apps, in memory. So that when you go back to them, they open up really quickly. That's exactly what's happening. Yeah, they're creating a snapshot of the app at that point in time, and then and then opening it up. Um, isn't that sort of what they're doing with multitasking in in iOS, or is it a slightly different? Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, yeah, it is. is there anything wrong with that? 
Nothing. I don't, I don't no, I mean, no, I think, and that's what I was saying about getting burned. I think a lot of people have sort of shied away from watch development because of the, because of the laggy performance, right? So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's the funny thing. Like you mentioned earlier, the talk show with Phil Schiller and Craig Federighi. Yeah. Um, did you watch that? I didn't watch the whole thing. I got oh, see, it's three, too bad a third of the way through. Yeah. I'm going to go back to it. You're going to have to. Uh, because the, the one thing that was very relevant to what you just said is uh, Phil Schiller, or no, maybe it was Craig who, who's saying, you know, like, what's responsible for this great performance enhancement? And he said, well, frankly, when we were building the first version, we didn't really, we were terribly worried about the performance. Um, and not using too many other resources of the, of the watch, but in in daily use, as time has gone on, we've we've seen that you know we we way overshot, um, and so the enhancements we're seeing is just taking advantage of the hardware that, that's already there, because they they had so much to spare, tons of power to spare, tons of battery to spare. Oh, so they were being super conservative, in other super words, super right? conservative. Okay, and I think you know you notice this. I think any watch user would probably understand this. Uh, they take their watch off at the end of the day, plug it into the charger, and it's like sixty percent battery after a full yeah, day. Yeah, right? exactly. It's yep. like, well, you know what? We're not even close. <laughs> and so, in terms of memory and in terms of power, uh, Apple has both to spare, and they're using it now with WatchOS three. Cool. Another thing that I think is potentially pretty interesting, although I haven't really explored it too deeply yet, is the new sharing in CloudKit. Right. So so previously in CloudKit, of course, everyone knows CloudKit is, is the API for storing your data, uh, your app's data up in the cloud. Uh, and previously, there were two containers per user. There was a public container, which meant that any anyone could look at it. And there's a private container, which was only your data and only you can look at it. So this year they've added uh, a new container, which is called a share container. Which for data, you know, database people, it's a, it's a, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, now that I, now that I brought it up, what's the SQL word for a join? It's a join table. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's been a while since I've had to think about that concept. It, it shows. Uh, so basically, the what the share says that uh, it, that there's a, there's some item that exists. If you created it, it exists in your private container but you can share it with other people and so it creates a basically a little reference in in your uh in your share container with a link to everyone else who's able to look at this thing and then other people can can look at your object that's in your private container but only under that that situation so what you can do is you could create some kind of a this is how presumably they're doing the the shared notes now in the, in the notes app uh, you can create some kind of document, put it in your private container, share it with a bunch of people, and then anyone can edit your document in your private container. There's potentially a lot of cool stuff that could be done with that. Yeah. So is that using like uh, ACLs, uh, access control lists, or some other mechanism similar? Like how, uh, how does one acquire access to that? So yeah, so you invite someone, and and then once they accept, uh, it, it it creates have to dig into the details a little bit more i think but but it creates an, an actual object in the shared container that basically says this object id uh is has a share link between user one the creator and user two the person who it shared with and i guess there'll be multiple ones of these if it's shared amongst the group yeah there must be some sort of distributed cache because i mean yeah. that's that's kind of how shared containers work now with between um uh, app groups and um things like that's how you share things between the watch and and uh, an, an app on your your phone, like a proper app on the phone 
um, you know, by currently, I mean, like in, in iOS nine, um, you share, you, you write, instead of putting your core data on the local store in the app, you put it in a shared container that both devices can get to. So they've probably taken that idea and extended it outwards. Right. Yeah. But, but the object doesn't exist in the shared container. That's why I made the, oh, it's just the a anal- reference. The anal- oh, it's like an analogy join, to a right, join. Right, yeah. It's right. not really a join because that's, you know, two different, two different yeah. tables and database, but it's sort of like that because it doesn't district, actually yeah. have the actual object. It just has two IDs to the different, ob- to, to the different user objects. Interesting. As part of the small object. Cool. Yep. So actually one last comment on WWC, not talking about a talk, but none of us mentioned any of the Siri talks as one of our interesting talks. Yeah, I'm not interested in that's, that. At all. That's interesting. Yeah, that's that's lower on the list because it's yeah. so limited. Uh, I, I yeah. get why they're doing it that way. Um but it it also means like, yeah, it's on the back burner, uh, I've got uh, what do I have above it? Uh, Apple Pay on the web is is higher up for me. Wow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that says well, everything. Well, no, that right makes there, right? that totally makes sense for you, Jaime, considering the kind of stuff you work on, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hmm, interesting. All right, so we've got about five thousand picks. Do you want to do picks now? Yeah. So uh, why don't we go around the table like we usually do and see if anybody has any picks, and we'll ask Aaron. Aaron, do you have a pick? Just one, um, and it is a product that I just received in the mail today. It is the Raspberry Pi Zero. Uh, if you, are you guys familiar with the Raspberry Pi? Of course we are. Yes, I was going to ask you with the, with the Zero. I saw your, your picture on Twitter's, but size of your finger, right? Yeah, just about the length of my finger, um, and a little thicker, but <laughs> definitely smaller than the existing Raspberry Pi. So just to back up, the Raspberry Pi is a low-cost uh, single-board computer uh, that is made by a foundation in the UK. They've been doing this for a few years now, and they've come up with several versions of it. It basically includes like an ARM chip and some basic I.O., uh, a little bit of USB, uh, an HDMI out, uh, audio and video out, like composite video and audio, um, and current versions of like the Raspberry Pi 3, like the, the mainstream uh, Raspberry Pi that's currently available, also includes onboard Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, I believe. Um, but this is a new effort and pushes their goals even further as a foundation, and that's the Raspberry Pi Zero. This is a $5 computer. Wow. Tiny, and it's tiny. It's tiny as all get out. And the whole point of it is to bring computing to more and more people, uh, and to make cost less of an option, uh, less of an obstacle when uh, getting a computer. Uh, the trouble is they've been out for a while. It's they've they've I don't know when they launched it. It was probably last year. Uh, you'd have a heck of a time getting hold of one. Uh, so. Every once in a while, they finish a manufacturing run, and they have various... uh, The Raspberry Pi Foundation has various vendors in the UK and in the States that uh, that sell the Raspberry Pi Zero when it becomes available. I got a notification uh, a week or two ago that uh, a, a vendor in the UK had some more stock, and they were sold out again within moments, but I was one of the people that got one. <laughs> so it arrived today, and I was able to have a look at it, and uh, it's just unbelievable uh, what, you know, the, the march of technology, right? Uh, yeah. For four quid, <laughs> for four quid or five US dollars, uh, you you too could have this if it were available to ship to you. Uh, the link I have now in the show notes is to Adafruit, which is the uh, US distributor or one of them for Raspberry Pis. Um, they do not typically have them in stock, but you can put your email address in there and they'll notify you if they ever do. Um, 
Now, one of the projects I'm thinking of doing with this is creating something that Adafruit, the electronics company in the States, uh, based out of New York City, they have this product that they have. It's a kit that allows you to make a retro gaming console, a handheld one, uh, based on the Pi Zero. And the Pi Zero, of course, I, I didn't don't think I mentioned this. It's basically a Linux computer, okay? <laughs> the whole point is that you supply like a uh, a complete Linux system on an SD card that you plug into it, and then you power it, and you plug it into a TV, and plug in a keyboard, and you've got a computer, right? So that's the whole point here. Now, in this project, uh, which I'll also add a link to in the show notes, uh, this Pi Girl is what they call it. It's not a Game Boy. It's a Pi Girl, and <laughs> it's a, a kit and with complete instructions on how to create a handheld arcade system uh, using a game system emulator, basically, that uh, includes a, a, a little LCD display, uh, all the buttons you need, um, as well as the, um, the uh, little, little breakout boards. Uh, as well as instructions on how to do it, and you you 3D print the case for it, and it's just a fun project that um, takes full advantage of this this amazing little tiny computer. Um, so that's what's going to happen to me. Uh, as it happens, I had a notification set for their uh, Pi Girl kit, which just today alerted me that they had some more stock because just like the Raspberry Pi, their kits are also very constrained right now, and so I was able to order that. Uh, I can't be, believe my luck. So now, um, the same day I received my Raspberry Pi Zero, I ordered a second one. And uh, what the hell? Wow. I'll, so I'll put the thing in the notes here. In your tweet, you mentioned that you were in such a rush to get it, you didn't know what you'd be able to, how you'd be able to hook it up. Is that what you were talking yeah, about? Yeah, uh, that's not exactly what I'm talking about. But um, if you look at the Raspberry Pi Zero, um, you, you know, you see the picture there on the on the link that I just gave you. Yeah. Um, it has uh, the the uh, the things that you need to plug into it to get it to work uh, are all very specialized. Uh, they're and they're tiny. So to power it, you need to use a micro USB, and uh, I have one of those. But you also need a micro SD card. Uh, oh, which, the micro one, yeah, yeah, mm. and not. I've got a regular sized SD card, a thirty two gig one. Uh, so you know, uh, I use that on my other Raspberry Pi, but I don't have a micro USB. Mm. So uh, I, I can't boot this thing. Also, sure. the uh, the HDMI is a mini type of HDMI, and you need an adapter for that thing, uh, which I do not have. That's not as important to me, though, to plug it into a TV like don't that. Don't you guys have a fries in Toronto? No, there there's no go. such thing as fries in <laughs> Canada. Uh, mm. There are other suppliers um, that, that we have here. So I'm not, I'm not lost, but uh, I am delayed. I'll put it that way. Yeah, we have Centronics. Isn't that the place in Scarborough that you go to? Creatron. Creatron, yeah. 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 Um, so and there's DigiKey too. too. Yeah. Anyway, it's a super cool product. And if you have any interest at all in uh, in computing on the cheap, um, the the Raspberry Pi Zero, if you can get your hands on it, uh, represents a very fascinating little uh, foundation for any kind of electronic product you might have. Sure. Cool. Neato. We'll have to get one. Um, What's what uh, what chip does it use for the processor? Uh, it is. Uh, I think it's. Well, it says on it, <laughs> the name is. Alpida. Now I thought it was a Samsung ARM chip. Like I'd read elsewhere that that was it, but that part is less clear to me. Yeah. It's like a, a 700 megahertz ARM processor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. We can see it in the link there, Mark. If you click on it. Yep. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. 
Yeah, we use the micro SDs on our uh, our three D printer. I'm all set. Uh, you just Jaime. have to get one. <laughs> yeah, Jaime, do you have? So, Aaron, can you run Xcode on this thing though? No. <laughs> How about Swift? Okay. For Not on the potato chip. Yes, you can processor. run Swift on it. You can oh, run Swift on it. Oh, there you go. It. See, there you go. Yep. Another reason to get one. Um, Jaime, do you have more than two picks? Yes, but almost by accident because I put one up uh, while we were doing the show. Uh, so my first pick is um, a blog post by uh, Joshua Werner. He's a developer at Fastly, the CDN company. And uh, this is all about, like, how do you undo just about anything in Git? And the reason this was near and dear to my heart is I had to make use of one of these tips because mm. I really <laughs> messed things up. <laughs> in particular, in my case, it was the resetting local changes where I had made some commits that were just like terrible. It was just I got myself into a complete mess and I wanted to go back to a known good place and just reset from there. Um, and there's all sorts of scenarios written in here for like, how do you... Um, how do you deal with things that are locally bad or how do you deal with something that's bad on the um, on the server, right? If you're pushing up to, to some sort of um, distributed system. And I highly recommend people take a look at this. It's not quite a recipe uh, list, but it's, it's pretty close. It gives you an idea of like, okay, what do I need to do here? Um, how do I redo after undoing or... What if I want to go back and do a branch or my master got my local copy of master got really far away from origins. Um, I think I've said before that like Git isn't exactly like the friendliest thing to use um, on the command line once it goes off the normal path. So uh, stuff like this is super helpful to look at. Cool. And pick number two. Pick number two. That is a blog post by Matt Butcher, the uh, platform architect at uh, Deus, or Deus, because it's like Deus. And it's the Children's Illustrated Guide to Kubernetes. Um, this one came up to me because of uh, DockerCon uh, happening, the convention about uh, Docker, the container, um, the container, what, service and technology um, conference that's going on here in Seattle. And there's a, a related bit from Google called Kubernetes that's open source. And in it, it has this um, almost this like framing story where the conceit for this blog post is that this guy is trying to explain to his young daughter, I forget how old he says she is, you know, like three or four, maybe five years old as to what is Kubernetes. And at first he starts out with, and I'll, I'll literally read this one. Kubernetes is an open source orchestration system for Docker containers. It handles scheduling onto nodes in a compute cluster and actively manages workloads to ensure that their state matches the user's declared intentions. I mean, that's, that's like actively true as to what Kubernetes is. Um, but the Children's Illustrated Guide is kind of like our um, thing that we've talked about, like the the ABCs of the web and, uh, and other bits where you take a, a little children's story here where it's about a, a giraffe who's, you know, out on the ocean and, and just trying to deal with, with things. And along comes uh, the owl Captain Cube to save the day and, and really make things better. And in it, you get an explanation at a really high level as to what everything that Kubernetes does. So if you have no clue what Kubernetes does, as I myself, you know, other than the name, didn't really know exactly what it did. Now I have a really good idea, and it's in a children's book form. You can you can read this during lunch while you're eating your sandwich. And you know how to pronounce Kubernetes. I didn't know that. Like, I, I've looked at this word for some time now and got Kubernetes? 
I yeah, just it's, didn't, it's, you know. <laughs> I, I don't know how accurate I am. I've been pronouncing it the way I've heard people pronounce it, but it's apparently yeah. based on a um, Greek or Latin word, more likely. Oh. I think it's actually mentioned in a blog post here. All right. Yeah, the, uh, Docker to me is such a fascinating technology that is nonetheless entirely impenetrable. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to examine this because I would like to know more. I, I wonder, if, is it possible that Kubernetes would allow me to understand Docker <laughs> uh, and somehow use that somehow? I don't know. Let's find out. Maybe. And there's some stuff that was just announced at DockerCon this week around orchestration um, that makes me wonder how things are going to work out between Kubernetes and Docker. I, I need to talk to some folks who, uh, some friends of mine who know what they're talking about and, and get their opinion. Yeah. But let's not pretend that this is simple technology. Oh, so it's not. So I'm not going to get like a glass of milk and some cookies and kick back and take this in. This blog post, yes, but <laughs> like, it, you're, not, you're not going to you're not going to do like you know learn Kubernetes in 21 minutes sort of book, right? Like, yeah, it's just I know. Too I dense that. They totally posted a video that I'm going to be watching after this this podcast is over. Oh yeah, that's right. He actually they had mentioned that. I guess there's physical uh, comic books that they or children's books that they'd handed out somewhere as well. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See if I can get myself a, a copy. I'm, t- of I'm telling you, we need to get a little cuddly giraffe to explain things to us, right? So, yeah. And yeah. Oh, as an aside, I didn't realize it was so last week. I had picked the um, App Store Review Guidelines comic book. I had no idea there were physical copies of that. Yeah, they were giving them out at uh, at the end of the game ge- or the um, design award. Oh, so that's how people. Okay, I was wondering. I thought it was like the swag you get when you register and pick up your badge. And yeah, no, I don't know. I think that I think the people that went. So at, they did the ten design awards. Um, by the way, one of our past picks, uh, Laura Croft, go uh, won a design award from uh, developers from Montreal here. Um, but yeah, at the end of it, they had the guy who did the comic book come up and talk about it, or the guy, the guy representing the company that did it. Um, and then at the end of it, they said, Dad, look under your seats. You, each one of you gets one in, on the way out. So thanks for sticking around. Still the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So my, my uh, bonus pick um, is another one that just, this one literally came up today um, in my work life. And that is uh, adopting Objective-C generics. So I, I think I had, heard about this last year at WWDC and when just kind of forgot about it and all of the wonders that was going on with Swift and everything else that was coming out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, collections support this whole concept of generics. So you don't have just a, this is an NS array. Okay. Of, of what? Apples? Oranges? Mm-hmm. NS string? Heaven only knows. And you kind of really only find out when something explodes because you put something in there that wasn't supposed to be in there. Um, and this blog post does a really good idea, a uh, good job of showing you of how this lightweight generics works, where you annotate. Um, it, I find it a slightly awkward notation, but it's it's passable, right? So you can do like uh, in this example for wheels, right? And, and NS array, you know, uh, greater than sign or less than sign, wheel <laughs> star. <laughs> Just call them carrots. Greater than you know sign. You know, carrots. So left carrot, right carrot. Right. Um, and then the, the, the star for it, you've got a pointer of wheels. In any case, this is telling the compiler that, Hey, I really intend there to be wheel objects in here and not NS string objects, not any other type of object. And the compiler will give you warnings or errors, depending on what it is you're trying to do. Um, it will say, Hey, look, the, this is a mismatched type. And so now you can say, Oh, 
thank you, Xcode. You showed me a red or yellow line. And I understand what I made a mistake here. I misunderstood what was going on. Um, this blog post does point out the fact that it's not, you know, full quote unquote real generics. So you can do, um, you know, things to, to cause this sort of check to not be effective. So like in this example, he casts an NS string into what, a vehicle object and then adds it to the, um, to the array, which passes at compile time. It's like, yeah, yeah, sure. A wheel goes in there. You put a wheel and, you know, at runtime, boom, he tries to call some sort of property or method on the, the object, which in this case is in a string and doesn't have, you know, a number of wheels. Right. So just something out there for people to be aware of and use. Uh, I'm going to speculate and say this probably came about for interoperability with That's uh, exactly why it came out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, you think? So yeah. if so, if uh, just to follow up on that too, the uh, Swift and Foundation uh, video on WWDC talks about uh, lightweight generics and Objective C. They've added some more to that in uh, the latest uh, versions of uh, X Objective C, I guess, somewhere. Yeah, I kind of forgot about this one because you know when you're doing autocomplete for the uh, the IDE in Xcode, it doesn't autocomplete for that for you. You kind of have to just know and guess that you're def- you know declaring it that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Tying this back into something we talked about earlier, uh, this is now used in NS fetch request in Core Data to make sure that all your objects really are of the right type when they come back. Ooh. Yeah. It's funny how how far things have come from the days when everything was just an ID and uh, and used uh, KVC. I had to get that right because I got it wrong last time. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> yes, that wonderful stringly. T- oh, wait. So you guys didn't mention that as part of uh, what's new in Swift three, um, the the fact that you don't have to rely on stringly typed KVC bits that you can have the compiler in Swift help you i say like i intend this to be this object dot this property dot that other property right anybody see that anybody catch that okay yeah 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 yeah. that's really sharp yeah and what mark was talking about with the id part for those who don't know is is that instance type was is what you're supposed to put instead of id that way whatever type it is that's what will be returned right that's specifically in in an init method but but in general ID is a is a general yes. purpose type that can represent any Objective C object, sure. and and it's it's very powerful, uh, especially if you want to if you're manipulating the Objective C runtime and 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 you're using you know mixing up different types of objects to do different types of things and you might not even know sure. what yeah. what the type of object is, but it's also really dangerous and, because and you, Swift you, totally doesn't like that, right? To, oh, Swift Swift will not allow that. Yeah. yeah. This is this is kind of what people when people are arguing about the dynamic nature of of Objective C going away in Swift. That's kind of the stuff they're talking about. Yeah, the ability to do just about anything. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Whether whether you should be doing it or not, exactly. Objective C will let you do it. Yep. <laughs> yep. Tim, you got a pick? I do. So I was uh, following Ayaka Nanaka this week, and she posted a picture of a new series of books that's been published on the iBook Store. Um, and one talks exactly about what we were talking about at, uh, in our videos, and that's the uh, Swift Playgrounds Teacher's Guide. Um, there's three books in this series, and I believe it's called Everyone Can Code. Just opening my eye books here. 
Um, so the first one is, is the first one I've got in here as a, as a link is uh, Swift Playgrounds for the Teacher's Guide, and it's a very well laid out book. Sorry, it's not in comic book format, but it goes through uh, with a number of and these free, of course. They're, they're sorry, they're get on the iBook Store from Apple. Um, part of their education program and they talk it's how to uh, deal with how to build swift playgrounds for educational purposes a couple of other titles that came out this week as well uh june 13th i guess guess the beginning of last week um was the app development guide in swift um which is a if you want to learn how to write apps this is again another book that's written towards uh, beginner and intermediate level developers um, but there's also a teacher's guide for that. And again, those are great resources coming out of the Apple education program. Um, and I don't know if I mentioned, I think I probably mentioned about six months ago that, that there, or even more than six months ago, there's a, a GitHub project where there's a bunch of lesson plans that uh, um, a gentleman has been putting together um, on teaching people how to, or teaching lesson plans on how to learn to code using Swift as a language. So it's kind of cool. So if you're interested in, in learning a little bit more uh, about Swift Playgrounds, other than what you saw in the video, there's a completely new free book from Apple on the iBook Store. That is terrific. Like the app development with Swift, it looks really good. Yeah, and they're really slickly, you know, well designed, nicely, nicely laid out, and very clear. Good, and, and you know, exercises on every on every second page, kind of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Time to start Downloading. reading now, since we're in the summer time the summer break period so don't be that teacher who is literally one chapter ahead of the students you've, you've got time to go through this entire thing yeah it's funny i uh saw a comment from fraser spears and he's a developer based in glasgow who um he's uh, very much into education he's a teacher and he works at a private school in glasgow where they um have gone fully ipad uh, from the very start back in 2010. Uh, his comment on this was that it's too bad about the timing because uh, Playgrounds, the app for iPad, won't be available until the fall starts, right? Until after the, the school year has begun. And so teachers aren't going to be able to adopt it as a teaching platform until the following year. You mean this this September coming up? You know, no, no, like a year of this September because it's already going to be too late for this september yeah but i mean all this all of the stuff we just saw at wwdc ships officially in the fall so yeah but october november whatever yeah that's right that's too late oh is it okay oh oh, to get in the curriculum you mean that's right oh i see right yeah Mm. well just timing yeah still uh this is excellent gotta start sometime (laughs) yeah yeah no apple apple always has had good uh Good t- teaching materials. Um, they kind of stopped uh, with doing some Objective C stuff um, a couple of years ago, and um, last year they came out with this Swift GitHub project. And, and this is, uh, and mind you, I should say they've had a few books on on Swift on the on the store. And of course, when Swift first came out in twenty fourteen, they published those two guides um, in the same type of format. So yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, those are more. Um uh reference books technical yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah then then what i think we're seeing here with Apple yeah these are yeah so, step through development kind of step yeah, by step is, it's so, kind of like a textbook more than anything you know yeah so i was over at my uh my grandson's house the other day and i showed him um instead of going to bed i showed him swift playgrounds and yeah he was totally writing functions within like a half an hour or so it's cool yeah awesome how old is he he's 13 
Oh, wow. Great. Oh, no, he's yeah. just turning 13. Yeah. So, yeah. My daughter, who's 12, uh, has asked to learn Swift uh, this summer. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully she'll stick with it and I can maybe use this uh, as a guide to take her through it. Cool. All right. So that's it. We're done. We're done like dinner. All right. So, Aaron, uh, if people want to find you on the interwebs, where would they look? Go to Twitter. Yeah. Woo! Didn't see that one coming. And uh, find me at Aaron Vay. All righty. And uh, Jaime, where people will find you? I am on Twitter as at Deva the Hair. And Mark? By email at markr at smapsoft.com. All right. And I am Tim Mitra. I'm in Toronto, Ontario. And T I M M I T R A on the Twitter machine. And that's it for the week. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Oh, actually. Goodbye. Oh. Bye. We'll say goodbye. He did. Everyone said goodbye. Thank you. And you just listened to the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items that we talk about on the show as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website, and if you can, please write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also follow us on Twitter. Once again, the podcast's Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mark and Jaime, just so you know, Aaron and I aren't going to be available next week, and Greg is going to be sitting in our place. So you guys can do a West Coast show. Oh, that's right. Oh, right. and he, then he works for Instagram now, too, so I can that's ask him true. why my iPhone 6 Plus still shows the launch screen that's still all colorful. While, <laughs> 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 like a personal radar, like a give him. Yeah, for sure. Oh, did he choose Instagram? I didn't yeah, know that. Sorry, yeah, he oh. chose Instagram. Yeah. Uh, that is oh, news to me as well. Okay. Yeah, I saw that somewhere on, I think it was one of the Realm videos from WWDC where he was identified as being at Instagram. Yes, uh-huh. yes, yeah. yeah. Nice. Cool. Good for him. Mm-hmm. All right, mm-hmm. I am uh, Tim. Can you say it, please? Oh, and scene. Thank you. All right, and scene.